0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg with another episode of the Remnant Podcast. I'm coming to you from the uh, palatial studio audience, uh, studios of uh, the Bonson Group in Newport Beach, California. Uh, This week's episode is brought to you by the book Things That Matter um, by Charles Krauthammer, who many of you... Shirley No uh passed away recently and his book is back on the bestseller lists, and I think deservedly so, because Charles was a not only a good friend of mine and a role model in a lot of ways, but he was also um one of the most indispensable public intellectuals of at least my lifetime. And uh his book, Things That Matter, is a book that matters, and we're glad to have the sponsorship. Uh so as as The most adept and clever listeners um, might have figured out because we were recording from the studios of the Bonson Group that my guest today is one David Bonson. David, welcome to be here. Welcome to the Remnant. It is good to be with you. I know figuratively you've sort of been a member of the Remnant for a while anyway, but now you can literally say you've been on the Remnant. That's right. Um, David is um, a
1: financial advisor. What is with your official. Like yes. That, inven- I'm the chief investment officer at my own company, the Bonson Group, and that's what we do, uh, financial advice, investment management, and, and then we just find a way to talk about politics all the time while we do it. Um, and uh, it's you uh, must be good
0: at it, because I've seen him light several cigars with $100 bills. So <laughs> um, not the client's money. <laughs> and uh, uh, David is also on the board of NRI. Uh, and- um, I can't, I can never remember. Is it the board of NRI or NR, uh, National Review? Of uh, National Review Institute. National yeah. Review Institute. Okay. Um, and, uh, so it's funny. David is an avid listener of The Remnant and, um, he's often, you might have seen him often on various financial TV shows and whatnot. And it was weird. One of the only times that David has ever sort of out of the blue asked if he could call me, making it sound like it was some kind of emergency, was on the episode with Christine Rosen. I asked, her whether or not social gospel ministers during the progressive era were pre-millenarian or post-millenarian, and this for David was uh, um, sort of a nightingale song that activated a side of him because your father was a significant theologian, right? Yeah, he was.
1: Right. So he was uh, ethics, theology, philosophy, intellectual, and he also happened to be a post-millennialist. Not to be confused with the post-millenarian. And so right, I'm sorry if I misspoke. It, it, yeah. and so that's what prompted the phone call was to immediately jump on the pronunciation of this ever so important
0: term. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you wanted to leap to the defense of post-millennialism.
1: Well, I, I do, I, I, but I. it's like most uh, straw men, uh, you don't ever want to defend the straw man, you want to defend the actual, and it was more like, there's a lot one could disagree with about post-millennialism, but I just want everyone to know what it is. Okay, so what is it? Just so and, you get and, this out of the way. So essentially... Because Christine the, Rosen, to my shock,
0: ducked the question. And Christine's a brilliant lady. She
1: did, know? and I think even the context, you you were bringing up the kind of creation science background uh-huh. and wondering where a lot of them e- go on the eschatology side. And I wasn't in the studio with you, so I don't know the look on her face, but she may have been wondering how all these things are piecing together. I was eating it up, and I was... <laughs> uh, I said, okay, we, Joe and I got to talk about this. But yeah, the... um in a nutshell, there's sort of three major Christian eschatologies. The belief that the return of Christ will come before a big period of peace on earth, and then we go into new heavens, or that we're, it will, there is no kind of new heaven period, what's called all millennialism, that essentially we're in this era now, and then we have the second coming, and we go into the afterlife. And then the third being post millennialism, that we're living in this era now since the resurrection. And that over the course of time, the kingdom of God continues to manifest itself more and more. And at some point, then Christ returns. We go to heaven or or not, and there you go. So it's either before, during, or after millennium. It has to with the timing of the return of Christ. Okay.
0: So the reason why I was interested in this stuff, and I, I will confess it's sort of like understanding interest rates. You become an incredible student of it when you're taking out a mortgage and then you forget all of it unless you do it for a living is I had to look into a lot of this for my first book because there's a big argument among the progressives. People forgot that the progressives, the, the social gospel movement was in many ways the religious arm of the progressive movement and they were not at odds. They were sort of joined at the hip and Post-millennialism versus premillennialism was a big part of all of that stuff. But that's not why people are – although, you know, for a show called The Remnant (laughs) – Well,
1: I've I've used that term my whole life in that context. There was sort of a remnant of of people that did kind of believe that through time there's going to just be a, a greater acceptance of Christian theology and Christian message. And And that we don't have to be discouraged over a remnant because we're going to be bigger than a remnant someday, well, of course, this language is all through the bible and, right and and it's nothing particularly controversial, but right now, the context which you use remnant it resonates with me because I feel it first of all, I'm part of your remnant, right right <laughs> I get it politically and and then I think and and civilizationally, but then there's sort of a theological context in in a way as well all right, so um
0: I know that this is not what a lot of listeners came for, but Sucks for you. So um, uh, let's bring it back down to uh, let's enter the rank punditry portion for a moment. We're recording this on Thursday morning on the West Coast. And I I missed the actual announcement or the press conference. But there's a certain amount of celebration from the Trump White House about I have about how they've. Agreed to agree to keep talking about something about tariffs, right? Mm-hmm. So, since this is more your ballywick than mine, what's your take on it?
1: Yeah, I mean, my my take, all along from a market standpoint, um, ignoring the politics, is that the there, there's a couple layers to what people ought to be concerned with. The first is whether or not he really means a lot of what he says, and and I'm in a in the view that he doesn't mean a lot of what he says. But with this topic, I actually think he does. Mm-hmm. Like, I I don't think he's, he's been talking about
0: this since the 80s, since
1: right? the 80s. Yeah. And he changed Japan with China and he changed Reagan with whatever the newer bo- people that are behind this globalist issue. Um, I think he genuinely doesn't know what a trade deficit is. Yeah, and, that's I, and, my I, sense. and I don't mean that, though. I, there's other things I'll be insulting on. That's not one of them. I'm just sort of describing. So when he says things like, well, trade wars are easy to win and so forth, the, the market has largely believed up till now that uh, there's some negotiating and posturing and he's kind of positioning to get to a sort of headline moment of being able to claim some victory. And that's mostly what I believe, too. But I don't believe it because I think he's actually really on the right side of trade and he's faking it to kind of extract a better deal or get a good uh, photo op with some miners in Ohio. I, I think he really is wrong on the issue. And I think he's going to just get a photo op with some miners in Ohio. The, the thing with the European Union yesterday is good news in the sense that we'd rather be saying there won't be tariffs on auto right. imports than that there are. Um, I think one of the things that I'm surprised people are not deciphering is what seems to me to have maybe been good news in the way the EU is responding to them could be bad news with China. Because I'm not sure that China is willing to capitulate the right. way that the European Union was and also, I've, and we don't know for sure whether
0: it was a capitulation. We don't right. know, right. and that,
1: and and so you you could my my. But see, I don't think Trump ever really intended to do the the auto tariffs. That that's where even I don't know about Pete Navarro, but even Wilbur Ross would say, "Hey, this is not going to be good, right?" And for for some of your key constituents in in uh, urban and in industrial America and things like that, I I think that the. Um, Market volatility has been such where we already are on a platform of the Fed normalizing interest rates. So across the economy, you have just the reality that they're trying to normalize the balance sheet. The Fed bought so – with these QE1, QE2, mm-hmm. they bought so much assets out of thin air. And now they're just trying to l- lower that by mm-hmm. not rebuying when they mature. That's all they're doing. Right. And then slowly short- hike the short-term interest rate. It's not dramatic. It's not a big tightening like what Greenspan did in 1994 or something, what Volcker did in the early 80s, but a normalizing. So that adds a little volatility, adds a little question into the economy. And then for Trump to have added the trade stuff at that time, that's where I think the bigger concern was. It isn't that it's clearly good because it's not. And it isn't even that it's clearly bad in this form. It could get really bad. It's that it adds to uncertainty. Markets hate uncertainties, hate skittishness. So people go, well, look, the market isn't down that much. I think they're right. But the question is, what would the market be up without it? Right. I mean, we have 3.8% unemployment. We're probably going to post a 4% GDP number tomorrow. You have corporate profits, the highest in history, margins, the highest in history. And the market is flat for the last seven months. It's not what is supposed to happen. Trump's trade talk is largely the reason for that.
0: Yeah. So I I agree. I also think that just the inflationary pressure of protectionism, is a dangerous thing when inflation is the thing that could derail all of this stuff, yeah. right? Um, but so I and maybe you're the wrong guy to ask this, but I don't care. So I've been trying to – because, you know, Scott Linscombe, who, you know, I am convinced – you know, he talks a good game, but I'm convinced he's cutting himself again because <laughs> of all this trade stuff. And we've had him on a few times, and he's he'd probably be the ideal person to ask this. But so the argument – because I, th- I think you're right, and this is something I've written a couple times where I think – Trump came of age politically, so to speak, at a certain moment in our politics where ideas from like Lester Thoreau and even Michael Crichton with his anti-Japan book, right, uh, were thick in the air. Right. Mm-hmm. And he I think he's got some of it from his daddy, some of it, whatever. But th- his ideas about trade in particular are vintage like 1983 ideas about trade um, of a certain kind of. Managerial, basically democratic view, right? And he hasn't let go of them. And I, so I'm a free trader, right? And ideally, I think a real free trade agreement would be a one-page agreement, right? Mm-hmm. It's, there should be free trade. You know? mm-hmm. um, and so I understand the arguments against, you know, NAFTA being several phone books long and all that kind of stuff and what's going on there and the rent-seeking that's involved. But it seems to me that the argument, sort of the Pat Buchanan-style argument for protectionism, even though I think it was wrong 100 years ago or 50 years ago, I think it's just simply wrong on Adam Smithian grounds, it makes a lot more sense 50 years ago, right? Where the entire supply chain for products could be, was still within your own, the four corners of your own borders, right? Now you have, so my point is, protectionism is always wrong with a very few exceptions, but it's particularly wrong now because the horse is out of the barn and we've got products that go back and forth across borders a dozen times before the final thing. And so when he, when you talk about sort of bringing these jobs back to America, it's completely missing the re- revolution in our supply chains and how we actually manufacture things
1: now. Is that wrong? Oh No, no, no you're completely right. I, let me make two comments. I would argue that. Much of Buchanan's protectionism was rooted in his opposition to multiculturalism, Mm -hmm. and there there was far more of a fear about the cultural ramifications, and morally and and otherwise, in, in Buchanan's. And now his economic nationalism, I still think, was equally wrong, but I really have not read anything from the president that indicates that his fallacy in protectionism is any deeper than zero-sum fallacy. Yeah. I just think he simply believes that if one side's doing well, then the other side must not be. And that he views it going back to... I've heard you say it before. It's a sort of real estate developer's mentality. Yeah. And it it was rooted in his view of Japan in the 80s, and we see it now, and it's pretty much that simple. However, the, the... the air is a little bit more opportunistic for him now politically because I don't think that our side does itself any favors by not acknowledging, well, some people did struggle as a result of oh, sure. some of the things post NAFTA and whatnot. Sure, sure, sure. Now, because I'm, you know, not a broken window fallacy guy and I don't think that the impact on a small amount ha- needs to become normative for the big amount. And, and, and I've read enough Hazlitt and so forth to understand what we do with this and how we policy prescribe out of it. But I think that what Trump did is take advantage of the fact there was a lot of that animosity and buildup. And, and, and then now he kind of attached that to his 80s real estate developer mentality uh, protectionism. Your point is that the effect economically is even more obsolete because of the realities of supply chain. right? And not to mention we've now had a couple decades of seeing – we can say whatever we want about that limited steel worker guy has been impacted. The fact of the matter is net-net has been overwhelmingly positive. Yes, it's been positive in China. Yes, it's been positive in Mexico. But it's been extremely positive net-net in American economic growth. So I think that there's a whole milieu of things that is enabling him to exploit off of it. And really, the shock to me is not that what he's saying or even where the left is. It's how so many conservatives have now decided law of comparative advantage doesn't work anymore. Right. Um, and, I, and, and I think that's the most distressing aspect. But I don't know if I'd say to the president's credit, I would more just say for us to kind of take some consolation in. I don't believe he's going forward with any of it, and I think the, of the more extreme aspects. And mm-hmm. a lot of the reason is deep down that whether it's uh, political instinct or ego or whatnot, if we were to go full blown like Smoot-Hawley type stuff, uh, he can't have the stock market drop thirty percent, right? He and, and, he's and it would, you think? Yeah. If, oh, if, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. If, if you went a prolonged trade war like that, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's right. And we like Steve Bannon said to my face. We need to drop the Dow 20% tomorrow so that we can stop China's generational, you know, takeover of planet Earth. I'm complimenting Trump here. He doesn't think that.
0: Yeah. Well, it's funny. Um, uh, Steve Hilton, you know, the British guy who's on Fox a lot. Very nice guy personally and all that kind of stuff. He straight up said to me, he said it on air on special report once that. Not only is he in favor of more and stricter, serious uh, tariffs against China in a trade war with China, he wants a full economic embargo. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and um that to me is crazy talk, yeah. you know. Uh, and again, you could do an economic embargo with China 50 years ago when it was poor. Right. And yep. it would cause some pain, you know, but not, not really. Or 30 years ago, it would cause some pain. But. Because of the changes in the way we, we do supply chain stuff, it's, it's just – forget the market in China. Just how we – how businesses, thriving businesses in America get their resources, get their sort of constituent parts for things. It would be wildly disruptive. And the, my problem with the well, – my list of problems with Steve Bannon is very long. You know, my argument against Steve Bannon has more layers than a typical Steve Bannon ensemble. But
1: um, – Part of the problem, I've lost my train of thought here. Um, the idea of this nihilistic way to get things done of just blow up the market so we can. Yeah, no, I, I,
0: I just, I started to, to wallow in my contempt for Steve Bannon on so many different fronts <laughs> that I, I got completely distracted. Oh, yeah, it's this thing. It's this, this idea. Look, I, I get that China, China's a, got an evil government, right? It's not as evil as North Korea, but you know, you know, we wouldn't come short of that standard and still be evil. And the, but this idea that somehow you know competitiveness between nations is a thing yeah. um i have a real problem with i hate saying this but one of the most brilliant p- things that has ever been written on this topic was by by Paul Krugman back when he was sane in the 1990s about competitiveness being sort of a mirage yeah. and the steve bannon view which i don't think is a straw man right and you can certainly hear it out there is that somehow if China had a massive economic collapse tomorrow, that would be good for us. And that's not how markets work. If, if
1: China overnight got much
0: poorer, that would be bad for China, but it would also be bad for yeah, America.
1: You, do you think Europe felt that the American financial crisis was good for them? Right. Uh, the, the, the interconnectedness now, the expression we use a lot is that if a certain domicile uh, sneezes, the other domiciles will catch a cold. In this case of China, they will not catch a cold. They will get pneumonia. OK, that's how deeply dependent, developed economic geographies are on China. And we see just them talking about a movement with their currency, which, by the way, is entirely the opposite of the movement that Bannon and Trump were all afraid of. They are absolutely manipulating their currency in China. They're manipulating it from going down, not Mm -hmm. to the downside. It's the complete opposite of during the the Bush years, and I and I'm not sure they totally get that either. But the fact of the matter is, you cannot have a recession in China and not have a recession in the United States. Right. And perhaps even a depression, if it depending on, on what exactly we're talking about, it could be brutal. But I, I think that the biggest flaw that they have, well, I'm more speaking to the Bannonist side here, is um it's not so much zero sum with Bannon. I, I'm not, I, I think he more views it that there is this entire cultural thing at at play, and that China has this master plan, take advantage of us, so forth, and and I don't know that we're doing American citizens a great favor when we talk about it in that us versus them language. And if we are going to, I'd like to do it about human rights. Sure, like, I'd like to talk about the moral superiority of the American ethos versus China. I agree. You notice that. they never do that. Yeah, and to Papikhan's credit, I don't say that very often either. He did. Sure, he was willing to to frame it in a more moral context. That's not really Bannon or Trump's point. Uh, the I, I sometimes feel that the only way we will be able to fully win this argument is to prove it. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, go do the trade war, and I want you, middle class consumers in Kentucky, to tell me what you think when you go into Walmart and prices have tripled. Right, but I don't really want that. Right, but I think that's what it's going to take to fully win this argument with with pop society. No, I I,
0: look, I I I agree with that on a number of fronts. You know, Edmund Burke is one of my favorite lines from Edmund Burke is, example is the school of mankind and he will learn it no other. That's right. And which means sometimes you have to show people you can't just tell people. And you know, I, I often in speeches will point out, you know, I think Ed Koch had it better where when Ed Koch, Mayor of New York, was voted out for a third term, he was asked if he was ever going to run again and he said no, the people of New York fired me, and now they must be punished. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? and, and so I, I, I think this was true. I think this is true generally about politics. It's one of the reasons why I was against the recall of Gray Davis, is no, that no. if the Democrats needed to own the complete catastrophe that California was turning into, and by recalling Davis and putting in Schwarzenegger, they made it bipartisan, which is one of the reasons why I like the the Tea Party stuff kind of bypassed yep. California is that you guys had a premature rebellion. And instead of sticking the aptly named Gray Davis with and the Democrats with all responsibility, you kind of diffused it and kind of screwed it up. Totally agree. And um, so I I agree with that, too. I think that sometimes you have to endure the pain of bad lessons. Um, To teach people things. The problem with that, and I find this is sort of analogous to my problem with a lot of the Trump stuff is, I don't, you know, like Bannon calls himself a Leninist, right? He actually wants, he says literally he wants things to be worse so that, you know, the famous Leninist line is the worse the better, right? He wants things to get worse to polarize and galvanize people. I don't want to be rooting for bad things no, to happen.
1: No, and and Bill Maher rightly took a lot of flack when he had the line. He was saying it the other way, like, let's hope there's a big recession so Trump can go out. And and uh, the argument against that kind of language in that case, which is it's true, it's a good point, uh, Bill Maher probably isn't going to be impacted by a recession in any way, shape, or right. form. And most people would be, and sometimes painfully so. So you just can't root for bad things to happen. And I don't want consumer prices to spike. I don't want bad things for farmers. Um I don't like all these whirlpool employees that are being damaged by the steel and aluminum tariffs, and that's a direct byproduct of a bad policy move the president made and In fact, a policy move hurting the people he was stating he wanted to protect you know blue collar workers in middle right. America. but I think that that is a very conscious uh belief in the ban and ethos that you got to blow things up before they get better and 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 I will say this. I don't think there's a lot of people left in the Trump administration still think that way. I think Stephen Miller sometimes is in that camp. But in the early stages, that was prevalent thinking I agree. Yeah. tactically, and he's still working his way out from under that. Yeah. I
0: mean, Larry Kudlow and Kevin Hassett, yeah. friends of ours, um, they don't think that
1: way. No, they don't. Yeah, no. no. And and I think that— uh, Did Lenin really say that line about the—to make an omelet, you got to— what was it? You got to break a few eggs to make an omelet, or something. Is that really a Lenin line? I've seen it uh, attributed to him. It's
0: it summarized his position. I mean, so it's funny. The word defeatism, which we now think of as a um, you know a personal sense of morale, mm-hmm. low morale, mm-hmm. whatever. My understanding of this is that it actually started as a coherent ideological program about how the Bolsheviks wanted Russia to lose in World War One. Because it would then uh, create a chain of events that would allow them to take over. And I could be butchering that. So whether or not he did the break of a few eggs, I mean, he did say all sorts of things about liquidate the Kulaks. You know,
1: well, so. <laughs> well, and it's so funny, we're, we've gone this direction, of the conversation, now I can riff it all the way back to premillennialism <laughs> and postmillennialism. That's one of the big eschatological differences in Christianity, is there are some who are rooting for bad things to happen, because they right. believe it'll bring the return of Christ, right. and there are others who are rooting for good things to happen. There's, I, so I happen to be a postmillennialist, I want the world to get a lot better, and I think it will, right. I just think it could take thousands of years, and at some point, uh, Jesus returns, we go into uh, heaven and whatnot. But the no, if I believed that I could achieve my agenda by things getting really, really bad, it does make sense to root for it. And it isn't, I don't think it's a moral way to approach these things. But it also, I I think, speaks to a much deeper um, level of misunderstanding about history. Uh, to to be consciously trying to create bad things for this singular good thing really ignores the the complexity of other issues that could open up and other bad things that, that play out of it. And nothing illustrates that better than the whole idea of a trade war. If if you were to get some sort of capitulation from China because you really force their hand, I don't think there's been much thinking at all about what all of the other byproducts of that would be.
0: No, I agree in terms of, First of all, I mean, the thing. one of the things that we really have to worry about in China is Chinese nationalism, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 the joke in China is that the people are almost as afraid of the Communist Party as the Communist Party is of the people. Mm-hmm. And they are trying to manage a landing for this giant economy where it's getting older before most of it is getting richer, where um, the concept of uncles and siblings and aunts has been removed for, you know, for a couple generations because of the one child policy. Yep. Historically, uh, any population that gets above, it's sort of like 120 males to 100 women becomes, uh, very violent. And, you know, and China has this much richer culture about saving face, you know, the whole story of what kowtowing is, is that you have to, you know, and so the idea of getting a short term Economic win that might be good in the abstract, but is seen as a humiliation of China, could have all sorts of other knock-on effects. It's sort of like the stuff with, with talking down Article
1: Five in NATO, which I think is madness. Um, it's interesting too that that um, th- there would be such a high degree of confidence as to how China would react. This is completely brand new territory. For all of us. Right. There has never been a superpower of their size and strength. It is effectively less than 25 years old where they've really been in a maturing place economically that has now tried to embrace Thomas Friedman. So in love with this kind of private uh, enterprise marriage with communist government. And they're they're in very new phases of a slowdown of this rapid economic growth. And they're managing that. And you have a, a, a kind of politburo of people that have never done it before because no country's done it before. Right, right. And, and and as they manage the, their currency and what it means to their people in the countryside and the cities and all these things that we think we kind of know exactly what the leverage points are. I don't think we have any idea what they are. I don't think they know what they are. And so to me, I'm always wary. I agree about history repeating itself, but that assumes that there's a historical precedent for something. This is new territory.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that's right. And I I think one example of that in China, and we can get off China in a second, is, uh, you know, the social credit score thing, which Mm -hmm. China is implementing. For listeners who don't know, uh, I think we've talked about it on the show before, I'm not sure, basically... Through a hybrid, and there's a great piece in The Atlantic about this, which we can put up in the show notes, through a m- sort of a menu of different technologies from facial recognition to AI on down, they are basically giving you a score of how good and loyal a citizen you are that tracks everything. And it is, is you know, so it, it will track who you're having conversations with, right? What they'll track, whether you go to a church and it will adjust your score um, the way your credit score would be. But if it's a social, it's a patriotic credit score. And it is profoundly Orwellian and totalitarian in its conception. We'll see how well they can pull it off. And the reason I bring it up is that there is this, you know, as you know, I'm i am much more hostile to teleology than than you are. And um, there is this bedrock assumption about a lot of people in the West that technology is always liberating. And technology is always liberating until it's not liberating anymore. And we used to think, you know, the original conception was that, oh, no, technology is going to be on the side of Big Brother. And then we saw that because of the market economy that, you know, it turns out it was empowering of the individual and empowering of freedom. And but there's no iron law that says it's going to stay that way and it can go back the other way. And China is figuring out how to do the Big Brother stuff in a really powerful and interesting, by my lights, terrifying way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm all for keeping my own personal list of my friends, social Credit, but the notion of uh, what what they're attempting to do top down I mean it, it's Orwellian on steroids, but I think that the the whole broader subject of the impact of technology in the culture um, what we do know is that historically from industrial revolution, and other periods that uh, there's economic opportunity comes that's a good thing. It can be disintermediating between the citizen and state, increased freedom but that we are now in a a new era where the technology is moving faster than our ability to kind of interpret it there's no need for us to go draw some luddite conclusions from it be afraid of it but to arrogantly speak as if we know exactly how it's going to play out is is my concern and i think that we're going to see china go about it one way we're we're dealing with it in our own country right now there is i think Kind of some sympathy on the left and right for a sort of crackdown on Google, crackdown on on Amazon around privacy concerns, monopolistic content filtering. It, it, these things are, um, are are new challenges, and and my advice is that we take old principles we believe in and not assume that we know exactly how the application of that's going to play out.
0: No, I, look, I I I I basically agree with that. I mean, I, I do think there are real problems to Facebook. I'm not sure that that Washington knows how to come up with the solutions to Facebook, you know? No. Um, and uh, if you look at you know the creative destruction of you know how it, what what was the company that just got pulled
1: from the S and P pulled from the Dow General from the Dow General
0: Electric yeah so yeah. you know like ten even ten years ago That's right you would have thought that General Electric was going to be oh, sure you know a a fixture of the economic you know economic landscape for the rest of Humanity, And it turns out that these things almost always look like they're going to be permanent fixtures right at the moment when the upstart comes in and gets rid of them. So uh, we, you know, I, I felt bad because when your book actually came out, we uh, this podcast was in its infancy and we couldn't figure out a timing to do it. So I figured this was a time to make amends. And I want to ask you what is uh, one of my absolute favorite questions to get asked on a book tour? What's your book about?
1: (laughs) It was one of my favorite questions to answer when doing my own book tour because my book covers like 10 different topics. And so whatever mood I was in, I got to pick that one to sort of focus on. In the broadest of senses, the name of the book is Crisis of Responsibility. And, and essentially the genesis of it was I did a multi year and very expansive study in the financial crisis. And so during the financial crisis, I was a managing director at Morgan Stanley and, uh, obviously one of Wall Street's biggest investment banks and, and both kind of biographically, economically, personally, client wise. There was a huge relevance of the financial crisis to my life, but as then post crisis, it became a matter of intense study uh, around the real causes and whatnot. And I, and, and, and it fascinated me. I read 75 books on the crisis and reviewed about 50 of them. And by, you know, book 30 something, I realized there wasn't a whole lot new to be said, but more or less. Every book had a, a blame and 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 most of those had some prima facie acceptability the The narrative that will be in the history books is that uh, inadequate regulation and Wall Street greed caused the financial crisis it 's um deeply embedded in the left and it 's not totally rejected on the right either. Mm-hmm. The
0: another Do you think it's a hundred percent wrong?
1: No, I think it is a hundred percent right and a hundred percent inadequate. Okay, and ne- necessary but not sufficient. Necessary but not sufficient, and I believe that some of a kind of subset on the right that blamed uh, the Fed easy monetary policy fits the exact same category. It was necessary. It was nowhere near. Sufficient, But there were uh, various reasons why monetary policy helped put kerosene on a fire. And then the more popular narrative on the right, also one that I have a lot of sympathy for but believe it is woefully inadequate at explaining the entire thing, is uh, the the notion of government housing policy, using housing to promote a social agenda, Fanny and Freddie and all these things. So what was fascinating to me is that all those theories noticeably miss... Uh, one pretty significant constituency, and that would be, uh, like everybody in right. Main Street. And yeah, they weren't just skipping over it. Main Street was really, uh, a significant actor in their play, but Main Street was the victim. Mm-hmm. And, and it was not just that the left said Wall Street screwed Main Street. It was that the right said government screwed Main Street. Nobody said Main Street screwed Main Street. And it became impossible at any objective reading of the data to see that this sort of um, milieu of irresponsibility had impregnated all of these aforementioned institutions and the society at large. Mm -hmm. And, And so I began writing a book on the financial crisis, which was not going to vindicate Wall Street or government policy or the Fed, all of which I thought were bad actors in the crisis. But it was going to just attempt to tell the truth about what I think had happened in the financial crisis. Uh, that and so how did
0: Main Street create the – what was Main Street's role in contributing to the financial uh,
1: Effectively, what we have – and so Chapter 4 of my book is the longest chapter in the book, and it goes through all of the data – Around the the categories of home borrowers that you essentially didn't really have a financial crisis apart from those states where there was non recourse financing they couldn't go after your income or your assets so the willingness of people to walk away from homes the the home in a housing bubble um, was purchased at a price that was very artificial they owed more than the home was worth. And they were willing to walk away because there was nothing anyone could do about it. Um, it was not related to job losses, income loss, or in uh, lack of uh, capacity to make a payment. It was a sort of strategic decision. It is a strategic decision I consider patently immoral, but it was one that is totally foreign to American um, behavior. 1991, the savings and loan crisis, is not exactly ancient history. Right. You had about twenty percent of American homes underwater, and you had a default rate of point oh one percent. Yeah. Uh, now that was not quite as as systemic and national as the crisis of oh eight, but you basically had about half of people who were underwater willing to walk away, and about half of those ended up doing so. So it was a difference between ten percent and twenty percent is what I believe was the difference between the Great Recession that we somehow sort of got through, and if it had been 20% who had no conscience, I do not think we would have got through it. There was no TARP. There was no capital hole that could be—the capital hole was too big to be filled, even with the benevolent hand of of government. Um, But there are still enough people. Uh, Amity Schles talks about the, the Forgotten Man the Great Depression, one of the things you could say about that person who was legitimately struggling economically, three jobs and you had 28% right. unemployment, he pays. Yeah. He pays. There was no social nobility in, in uh, not paying your bills. Well, m- the point I went to with the book was apart from the economic implications of somebody abandoning their obligation in their home, and by the way, all of the levering up to get there. The keep up with the Joneses covetousness that caused it. Um, and, and, and that was really the point I'm making is that Dick Fold at Lehman Brothers was trying to play catch up with Merrill Lynch's return on equity. And he saw Blackstone buying more and more commercial real estate in Europe and he had to do it. And that was happening on Wall Street, but. What was happening on Main Street? I would just argue it was the exact same thing, but the people weren't wearing as nice as suits, and there were a couple less commas and the numbers mm-hmm. on the line. But it was this attitude that uh, of entitlement and, and all these types of things. Um, well, v- v- uh, effectively. The The notion of not paying your bills became something to brag about out of 08. The guy in Orange County, California, could go to the bar on Friday night and impress women by saying how he had just walked away from his his four condos he had right. bought. And that, to me, represented something happening in the culture that was far more distressing than anything happening economically.
0: So it's interesting because this is, uh, as as you know, because you're one of the one of the handful of reviewers of my book who actually read my book uh, <laughs> I, I, I came away from working on on my book uh, a little more pessimistic about the future of, of, of capitalism um, in part because I imbibe so much of Joseph, Joseph Schumpeter mm-hmm. and Schumpeter, you know this is a, sort of the one of the main themes of the book is that, and, and you find this in you find this in Hayek, you find this in lots of places, is this this idea that capitalism depends on values it cannot create and cannot restore once lost, right? And that capitalism, far more than we're willing to appreciate, in part because economists have so dehumanized it in the way they talk about it, capitalism is actually a cultural product. It is something that emerges from a specific place in time, comes out of basically England and Holland, comes to America, and it is uh, you know even though i don't think, even though i think the protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism by max weber uh, is a bit off i think its basic point is still right is that the 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 argument is is that protestantism especially the puritanism and the calvinism stuff changed the equation of how people saw themselves right and so the whole idea was that if you behaved in a certain way it would pro- show that you were more likely to get into heaven right and so the Protestant work ethic was not a get rich quick scheme. It wasn't the prosperity gospel. It was a theological and cultural thing that said if you have honest dealings, mm-hmm. that if you pay your bills, right? Um, if you delay gratification, those are the kinds of attributes that you would expect of someone who is predestined to get into heaven. So it never had anything to do with economics, but the economics were a cult, were a byproduct of this cultural transformation of things. And so. I don't think we appreciate in America to the extent that we should, and I think this is a big part of the argument in your book, is that, the, you know, as Chesterton says, the purely rational soldier will not fight. The purely rational man will not marry, Mm -hmm. right? Capitalism depends upon these moral – these commitments to moral norms Mm -hmm. that um, make the whole system work, right? And one of them is just the whole idea of paying your bills, right, of actually – not lying about what your balance sheet says, right? And if you take that stuff out and you say, "Well, look, I just made a dollars and cents purely rational economic economic, ra- you know, you know, homo economicus decision here that it made sense for me to walk away from my debts and stick somebody else with the bill, um you can't argue through pure reason why that guy is wrong. You can only invoke cultural moral arguments about why that guy is wrong. And we don't
1: the way we teach economics isn't that anymore. But then it triggers a vicious cycle because what happens is the uh, cultural norms that get violated – do end up leading to a breakdown of the the sort of econometric necessities of a free market economy. That there is, that it affects interest rates, affects cost of money, it affects the the nature of commerce in general. People can't trust the other side. But capitalism, as a cultural um, institution, so to speak, is extremely important in the book, and I believe was very important to our our founders that it presupposed a certain morality. A virtuous people. A virtuous people. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why I've, I'm a real, real uh, big zealot for the Acton Institute. Father Robert Sirico has started this think tank that, to me, I kind of think it's life or death for the future of free enterprise in our country because I think we've spent now a few decades lar- within conservatism, within people who are pro-market, trying to defend it econometrically, trying to mm-hmm. defend it as, well, supply and demand is more optimized in capitalism than collectivism. This is the way we're going to go.
0: There's also the whole Randian
1: thing Well, that's, that's where yeah, I was going yeah, with yeah. it. I, I think net-net, and I know a lot of listeners right now are going to disagree with it, and that's why I'm saying it. <laughs> the Randian uh, approach to markets has done more harm than good because they have gotten virtually every conclusion right from almost entirely wrong premises to me i defend markets largely the way arthur brooks ai has done such incredible job at popularizing this it is rooted in the dignity of the human person right and so my argument against someone walking away from their bank mortgage was not merely what it would do to credit spreads right it was that it robbed that person of their dignity and that, that that it denied the concepts of human accountability, responsibility, thrift, virtue. Fundamentally, I'm a big, big pro-market guy, which by definition means that I am opposed to a lot of government intervention in the market. But that reasoning is not uh, all pragmatic. It's not all based on on how we can maximize profit per share or how uh, grows GDP. I think those things are important, but they're all consequence. Fundamentally, I think the human person is most stimulated, achieves most joy when they're in that uh, paradigm. They're able to go achieve their dreams and not be a, a ward of the state and so right. forth. Right, mean, but I
0: mean, but this gets to Schumpeter's point, which was that why he thought capitalism was doomed. I don't think it's doomed. I just think it requires a lot more work and upkeep than people are willing to put into it. Was that? The, the the relentless rational rational efficiency of of homo economicus of seeing everything as uh, as a phenomenon of the market and in a profit maximizing question he you know he has this line where he says um, oh, I'm going to butcher it but the gist of it is you know the the market doesn't just destroy bad old institutions like the divine right of kings. It also goes at things like the family, right? Sure. And so the only way you sustain a system of capitalism, which depends enormously on trust um, and integrity, is by teaching those things outside of the system of capitalism, right? I mean, it's the family that has to teach those things first. When the family breaks down and you introduce people who have not been properly civilized into a market system, they are going to think it's the devil take the hindmost because why not, right? I'm got to get paid. And I think that this is this is where the roots of our problem are is that civil society is not doing its job of creating virtuous citizens. And I and not to harp on Trump stuff, but you know, a, a friend of mine, I'll keep him out of it, but he's a big private equity Wall Street type. He once told me, he says, "Look, integrity lowers the cost of capital." And it's always stuck with me. I think it's a great Saying right, And his point was so that if you're a bank and you've got a client who always paid on time, was always honest when he hit snags, right, and always uh, behaved uh, as if he cared deeply about his reputation, you're going to be more likely to lend that person money at a discounted rate than you would someone who's high risk, right? Donald Trump is a, in many ways, in my experience with business people, is kind of a black swan, Most of the business people I know, and maybe that's just because of the circles that I'm introduced to them, care enormously about their integrity, care enormously about this sort of, whether they're Jewish, Protestant, or Catholic, doesn't matter, but this sort of Protestant work ethic point about honest dealings, about...
1: Reputation.
0: Reputation, right? And Donald Trump is one of the only billionaires I've ever heard of, if he really is one, who openly brags about how he went back on deals. Um, He writes about it, or his ghostwriter writes about it in The Art of the Deal, right? He brags about how he whines until he gets his way, right? He brags about lying. And there was a reason why Donald Trump, as a businessman, could not get loans on normal equity markets. is because he was famous for not paying his bills. And the problem I have about this is that Donald Trump, and I, I I know a very rich guy who says, you know, my problem with Donald Trump is he makes rich guys look bad. And
1: a lot of people feel that way. uh,
0: He's bringing those kinds of... Values and approaches to politics And I think it is, yeah, it you, is a real problem
1: You're using the example of uh, Screwing over banks that own you money And you can't find other banks that want to loan you money What exactly makes somebody have to turn To a, a guy who took the bar At an unaccredited school in Canada To be his <laughs> personal attorney <laughs> If he hasn't screwed over every law firm In Midtown right. Manhattan um, And I agree, but to, to that point About the line of, um, uh, of Integrity being uh, Something that lowers cost of capital It isn't even that someone then has to discount the rate they would use. It would just be priced in. The price discovery would itself absorb the reality of that integrity in the marketplace. Right now, every transaction we do, and there's a lot of complexity and invisibility to it, but it's there is impacted by the massive legal and compliance cost. And you're fond of quoting one of my favorite lines, that complexity is a subsidy. Right. The amount of legal work that has to be done for any two companies to transact now, that is not just because the lawyers got smart at how to trick us into paying them more. Right. All that stuff has to be done because fundamentally there's not... Uh, it It's necessary to protect interest in society because of the erosion of character right We could have significantly less legal compliance cost if we had a significantly higher level of integrity and character. Mm-hmm. so what happened with this this study of financial crisis what what you said about Trump of bragging about screwing over deutsche bank right or or city he has different lenders in different periods you know it was American banks he screwed in the late eighties, early nineties European banks in o eight well. I don't think that, that it really helps explain why that didn't bother a lot of the voters. Mm-hmm. They had just got done doing it. Right. They had also, they yeah, didn't write that's a book. Point. That's they didn't point. write a biography. They didn't have a ghostwriter. But they had just got done at the bar bragging about it to get a girl. Yeah. And I think that that is all indicative of the same cult moral breakdown and that view of ethics is you can say now we have Dodd-Frank or now they're too big to fail is different codify. There's different codifications in financial regulation. And I would I would agree with that. I think that whatever the next crisis we end up having is not going to look like, oh, wait, it, just too many things are kind of changed. I'd like to think that monetary policymakers learned something from that period of let's call it 1998 to 2006, the Greenspan era of excessive easy money. But what I'm very convinced we didn't learn is that that sort of ethical mentality of of saying, "Hey, good news! I got a bank who will lend me the money. I don't have to put anything down." That's not a good thing, right? And and, and I'm not saying the government's going to regulate it. I'm saying if a bank's going to do it, then the bank deserves what happens to them when that person is unable to to make uh, their payment. The truth of the matter is. We had a completely – this isn't political or economic. It's just the way we view this in our society, this idea of housing in and of itself is this great thing, being a homeowner. President Bush was one of the worst culprits of this, describing Mm -hmm. it as the American dream. The American dream is not to pay interest only on a home that you're 100% levered on. Right, right, right. Just so you can say I own a home. That was not the American dream. It was the process of actually saving for your down payment, you get a pride of ownership right these studies are fascinating. they go the- home ownership bodes well for communities. There's better quality of care than when there's a lot of renters. It's actually totally untrue. It's where there is significant equity in the home Mm -hmm. that you see better care. But when you actually have a 5% down mortgage, those things don't move the needle. People don't have that same degree of pride of ownership. So I think all those things are very fascinating culturally. But by the time I was ready to sort of get deep into the book on that subject, then 2016 happened. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, on a daily basis, we were being told that NAFTA was why we people couldn't get ahead in Ohio. And that, uh, that whether it was China, immigration, automation, um, all of these different sort of uh, boogeymen in our society were, were put out. And if it had just been the left doing it, if it was classic identity politics or classic class envy, I wouldn't have had much to say about it that was unique or profound. Mm-hmm. We, that's been going on forever. That uh, Certain minorities have been unable to get ahead because they've been victims of this, that, and the other. That's been a leftist mantra for, since well before you or I were born. Yeah. Now the right's doing it. And, mm-hmm. of course, this is where you go with, with, yeah. with your book, Ultimate, as well. But what, what I end up concluding in my book is very apolitical. It is saying, just get out of bed and start with that person in the mirror. What exactly is really going on in your life? Do you really believe that a factory closing in 1978 is is why you can't get a job at Starbucks? Or when you do, you refuse to show up for it. Right. J.D. Vance's book, everybody loved it. And so I hate to be so cliche, but it was that good. Yeah. His hillbilly elegy, it was just, first of all, he's such a good writer. It was such a powerful story. But it really reinforced his basic truism that I think we've forgotten. That fundamentally, there's always external things that we're dealing with. Everybody through the course of history has had challenges, and everyone through the course of history, there are remnants right. that have gotten through them. I'm just asking more people to join that remnant right. of, of a survivorship mentality and and um, focusing on just being a productive member of society instead of purely a consumer.
0: Yeah, I mean, and this gets to a, you know, an important – did you read this Andy, Andy Smerich piece in the Weekly Standard about – the moral ledger, ledger of Trumpism.
1: Um, oh, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. I didn't identify that. author. Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, think,
0: yeah. I, I don't want to dwell on Trump, but I, I think there's this point that he makes that is very near and dear to my heart yeah. that goes back to stuff I've been writing about Hayek and Burke for 20 years now, which is that these mores and customs, there is... How to put this? Getting back to this point about seeing everything through the prism of homo economicus, right? So forget homo economicus and just think about Think, seeing everything in terms of zero-sum thinking, right? The argument that we get from a lot of people on the right, and it breaks my heart coming from the right, is that these norms and mores, we should look at them only in the, in the context of whether they serve our immediate, short-term interest, right? There's this thing of Alinsky envy mm-hmm. that has you know come mm-hmm. up, and that we should you know press for our advantage based in, in, in any given moment, right? And the problem with that kind of thinking is that the whole point of civilizational advance is that there are there's enormous trial and error built into all the sort of norms and values that have accumulated over over generations. Right. And when you say, well, honesty isn't served, you know, the virtue of honesty isn't serving me in this moment. So therefore, let us. Abandon the idea that it's a virtue. (laughs) Yeah, down the road that is going to bite you in the in all sorts of ways. And societies have learned this kind of this by trial and error so many times, where you know there are reasons why honesty, decency, uh, the golden rule—that these things are valuable, even if they are inconvenient in a political in a particular moment. Right.
1: But it's the timelessness of them. Right. And this is where teleology becomes important to me is the timelessness of those values is rooted in the timelessness of the God who created them for me. That's my belief is that the um, uh, uh, renewed belief in God and in his expectations of the people he created. Necessarily carries with it the ethical requirements that you're describing. No, I agree with that.
0: Like as you know, you know, I say in the beginning of the book, there's no God in the book, and then mm-hmm. God kind of sneaks in at the end. I think that if you had, there are there are many reasons why we have the problems that we have. There are many reasons why we have the problems described in in your book and the, described in my book. If I had to pick one, it would be the loss of the concept of God fearing. Mm-hmm. Right. There is, you know, Adam- and not
1: just from people who don't believe in God, from people who do believe in God. No, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's
0: right. You know, um, you know, Adam Smith talks about the neutral observer. You know, you, people want to behave as if they're perceived as if they're decent people from a neutral observer. Right. God fearing is more powerful than that. Mm-hmm. God fearing is the idea that, you know, it's sort of the like old phrase Character is What you do when nobody else is watching. Right. God fearing is this idea that oh my god, literally, <laughs> um, no pun intended, no pun intended. Uh, oh my god, you know, there's somebody in the universe who's keeping a ledger about my soul, yeah. and it that is where you get honest dealing, right? That is where you get people not walking away from their mortgages. Yeah. That's where you get all sorts of things, and when you lose that sense. I do think you can be a decent person and be an atheist. I do think you can be a de- – but what you're doing is you're living off of the moral capital of others.
1: You're living off the moral capital of others and you're willing to kind of exist in the internal inconsistency of your own view. The, be, like I, Christopher Hitchens said to me once and I had an argument with him for about an hour and uh, didn't we go anywhere. We, he ordered another drink and then I don't think he believed what I had to say. But yeah. He said, "At the end of the day, what you're describing is not a problem because of morality or what God said. It's because it will end up hurting you at some point." And I said, "But of course, that's not true. If I'm able to be immoral and clever and screw people over, and then I and then I pull my chips off the table in time, it won't it won't hurt me. Right. Right. I will go off and I'll just be at the resort in in whatever you know chosen luxurious place I want to be. The 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 Gordon Gecko speech in Wall Street." I'm always fascinated when people will say, like, you see, that's obviously not sustainable. No, he was completely correct. For If if not getting caught is the highest ethic, there right. are plenty of people that can screw people over and not get caught. Right. We read about the ones that get caught and all the destruction that comes out of it. But fundamentally, for a sustainable culture, the rooting in real values that you actually hold dear when someone isn't looking is the only way that we can actually sustain right. the, the miracle that you describe in, in your book. And it's why, like, in, in the review I wrote of the book, where I don't know that anybody could have loved the book more than I did, <laughs> and and particularly the conclusion. But I was critical in the first chapter, but not critical of, of something that was said. It was the the structure of the argument. I believe, it, it, I felt that there was a sense in which you and others have read too, and I, and I get exactly where it's coming from, I think Crot uh, hammer talked this way. Sometimes we're all way better off if we act as if there's a god. Mm-hmm. And I think it's true. My my argument, and I'm saying this like transparently as a proselytizing <laughs> Christian, right? I I don't think it will be sustainable to fake it. Oh, I, I think that's
0: fair. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And again, so this is. This gets to a sort of a problem I have, you know, that, that, that I've gotten from a bunch of reviewers. Um, not necessarily you, because you, you actually got the book. But I, look, I, I stand by everything I wrote in the book. I mean, there are a couple stupid little errors. But, you know, the, I stand by all my arguments in the book. I wasn't arguing in bad faith, making arguments that I don't believe. But I was, what I was trying to do is model behavior that I think is really lacking on the right these days, which is to try and persuade people who disagree with me. And if I wrote a book saying, well, God gave us all of this yeah. wonderful stuff, there are lots of people on the right who would say, well, of course, that," but I knew that already, whatever. What I'm trying to do is actually talk to a different audience yeah. and persuade them to my way of thinking about these
1: things. And So your point was more tactical than metaphysical. Yeah. I mean, look, I believe in God. I but do. Like you, you know? But you weren't trying to frame, uh, create an epistemological framework that allows to pretend there isn't Build a worldview and a, and a belief about civilization. Then get to the top and say, "Okay, there had to be a God who did this." You 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 were purposely trying to argue sequentially because it was going to be more persuasive to the audience you were going after.
0: That's right. So what, I, what I'm trying to do is ask people to look through, look at the world through a slightly different prism than they're used to. At least of sort of, I don't want to say left wingers, but you know, just mm-hmm. sort of just general, generally secular people, yeah. and say that. I can make the case for why this thing that we've got is better than any any alternative without the appeal to authority of God, right? Without saying that—because uh, to uh, appeal to authority is a logical fallacy unless all the parties in the argument already concede the authority that you're talking about. Say we're brothers, and I say you can't do that because Dad says so. You recognize Dad's authority— and you, therefore, agree to it. But if you're a total stranger and I say, you can't do that because my
1: daddy says so, you're like, who the hell is your daddy? But see, the difference in your analogy from what we're talking about and how we frame a theory of knowledge is I would say, OK, you don't agree. You don't appeal to the same authority. I man. you don't believe in God. I do. But what I would do is point out they do appeal to some authority. I don't accept that they have this neutral position and I don't. I would simply point out that philosophically, we're both appealing to some authority that accounts for our belief about the laws of logic, laws of science, laws of morality, laws of nature. I'm being transparent that I'm admitting I'm rooting those beliefs in the belief of God. Now, what are you rooting them in? And so the appeal to authority uh, is not a fallacy if we both agree with that authority will be. But the whole conversation skewed if one person admits they have an authority they're appealing to and one person pretends they don't.
0: Oh, look, I, I agree with that. And, you know, this is one of the things that drives me crazy about Democratic rhetoric about, you know, I can't, you know, John Kerry, I remember in the 2004 debate saying, you know, I passionately believe in God. Uh, my faith is why I want to protect the environment. The faith is why I want to fund public schools. My faith, blah, blah, blah. But and then he says almost on a dime, but I don't believe I can impose my religion when it comes to something
1: about abortion. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, you know, you know. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. If your faith is driving all your other public policies, yeah. you can't all of a sudden say, well, it's not my there,
1: There's a clip you've got to watch on YouTube of when Father Sirico was in front of Barbara Boxer and like, almost anybody in front of Barbara Boxer was usually a pretty funny Senate hearing. But she was going after saying, "Have you Father, are you in agreement with the Pope who has come out and said this about climate change? Are you in agreement with the Pope who's saying this about environmental stuff? And she was trying to trap him in yeah. this little gotcha. And he said, I'm so warmed to hear you quoting the Holy Father. I assume next you're going to quote what the church has said about abortion. <laughs> she didn't quite take the bait. <laughs> but but to answer your question,
0: so what I'm trying to do is, you know, and this, was, this is one of the reasons why – this is also what I was trying to do in liberal fascism, which was lost on a lot of people, was actually define my terms, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Suicide of the West is a little different. But imagine you're arguing with a left-winger, right? So what I do is I uh, – you know, it's 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 a lot of it is an implied rather than stated. But if I'm arguing with the left winger and say, okay, what do you think government is for? How do you judge morality in politics and public policy? And they'll say things like fighting poverty, improving public health, improving the environment, right? Improving education, right? And I'll say, Okay, let's work with that. Mm-hmm. And working by those terms, liberal democratic capitalism is the greatest mm-hmm. System, the best system that has ever been created to fix all of those things. The only place where it falls down is inequality, because inequality make because capitalism makes everybody richer, but it doesn't make everybody equally richer, right? And we have have the same pace and same right. So I mean, there's nothing inherent to capitalism that says you can't have a society where nobody is poorer than a millionaire. But you are going to have people who are billionaires, you know, and it's that distance that bothers people and it's part of our wiring. And so the point of what I'm trying to do is say, I'm going to work on your terms, not my terms. And I'm going to make the case that this thing is still awesome and we should be grateful for
1: it. Yeah. And what so what you were doing there in deconstructing the inconsistency of the way they get to their policy conclusions from their terms well, essentially, you were undermining the Rousseauian foundation that, that so much of the left comes from. And right. and the, so much of the book is a, a great apologetic for Burke, Locke, social contract, and, and, and some of the foundational, uh, philosophies of conservatism. I guess all I'm saying is, if I go even further back to undergird a foundation, there's a metaphysical foundation. Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that. And, and then, but then you get there in the conclusion, and it's it's. I'm not kidding because you're sitting here. I've said this about you behind your back way more. That conclusion is majestic. It really right. is. And 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 so, so it was more the tactic that you were trying to go for. I, I, I got it and I understand it. I really, I really think that the odds of a leftist saying, I'm not going to adopt any of the epistological foundations and I'm fighting with him about Locke versus Rousseau, but I, I kind of now get the whole point. I don't think you're saying, oh, that, 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 uh, uh, sequence of thinking will, will play out that way. What I think it does is expose the inconsistency. And, and I think people on the right need to read the book. To remind themselves why they believe what they say they believe, right, right, right. and why they care about Western civilization, and and I think that the book does that. As far you know, it's funny we've people are asking you and uh, others what well, what do we do from here? Like what's the hope? Well, how's it going to work? And 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 the the title of the book suggests a certain pessimism. Um, I have the word crisis entitled my book, but I said this over and over. I don't think it's a great analogy, and I don't really know what to do with it. But I just think it's it's anecdotally interesting. This Me Too movement happened like in about five seconds. Yeah, and and I think it's going to a really weird place. And Hollywood's hypocrisy is despicable to me. And. And really, at the end of the day, I don't really care very much about Harvey Weinstein. I don't care about him now. I didn't care about him before. There's plenty of other perverts in the world that are you know, leftist hypocrites, you know. But I do think his op-ed the next day after he got caught about, okay, look, I grabbed some women, but now I'm going to go after the NRA. Right. I do think it's one of the funniest things I mean, I've ever it It's awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but the point being, culturally, this society's uh, position around that stuff changed, like, instantly. Yeah and i just kind of have become too humble to think things can't change quickly and and i and i believe i'm with charles murray on the kind of social unraveling beginning in the in white america mm-hmm. beginning in the 60s and that right now this sort of inversion of all of our family values metrics so that that's largely kind of where we are in the society now and i would admit that took 40 to 50 years I don't uh, expect that we're going to get back to a gratitude of the miracle sooner than forty, fifty years. I think it could happen, yeah, too. but but I do believe it will. And a lot of that is my belief. Walter Russell Mead's "God and Gold" book is one of my favorite books of the last ten, fifteen years. I don't. I guess I don't agree with every word of it, but but fundamentally, I do think that there is something special about the juxtaposition of America's sort of theological heritage. And its capitalistic heritage oh I agree i agree and 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 i and I'm conv- i 'm not i 'm watching this gal in New York and the Sanders and Warren phenomena, but the Obama years encouraged me more than they encouraged my conservative friends and and our friend our, the late latecrathammer did more on this than anyone. The American people largely they liked him, but mm-hmm. they didn 't like what he was saying yeah and and I feel that there 's still an ethos in our country, even through the financial crisis. That, that there's still an underlying ethos of, of morality and of uh, rugged individualism. It's, it's declining. And those mediating institutions that Deval Levin talks about need to become front and center again. But I'm not, I'm not willing to throw in the towel yet. Uh, but, you know, no, if, I'm not either. I mean, this, this is the life I have chosen. Yes. You know? um, the remnant. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and
0: I, you know, the whole thing about the remnant is implied that I'm going to stick it out even mm-hmm. though I'm outnumbered. The but
1: there are days, I don't know if you're friends with Dennis Miller or not, um, I've seen him do stand-up a bunch and he always talks about, I don't know if you've seen Miller do stand-up, but a lot of times you don't really know if he's not a joke or not. He's just sort yeah, yeah. of talking. He has this whole riff about how he's just building a wall. And just slowly but surely, and he keeps, he's coming out, he's doing his thing, and then just one day the walls going get high enough, and he's just, that's it, I'm out. <laughs> and there are days where I'm tempted to that thinking, but it is my no. post millennialism, the auto rally.
0: <laughs> no, me too. I mean, there are individual days that are rough, but you know, this is a good fight. And it's, it's a, a good fight. Fight, fight worth being in. We've gone long, yeah. and I have to, uh, I'm giving a talk at the Lincoln Club in a, in an hour or something. Yeah. And I got to get I got to get packed and do all sorts of things. So we're going to call it quits here to li- thank you, David Bonson, very much for being on. We'll try and do it again. You know, next time you come to Washington and uh, or next time I'm out here, I, I need more excuses to be out here. But please keep up with the reviews. Keep please keep up. Um, if we, remember, when you say nice things on on Twitter about um, at Jonah Remnant, it, it's helpful to us and it'll get you more retweets and all that kind of garbage. And um David's book is, again, Crisis of Responsibility. And mine, if you didn't know, is called The Suicide of the West. And uh, I'll see you next time on the next podcast.